Today is Reformation Sunday. Um, so for those of us who have trusted in Christ and who, who know that Christ alone is our Savior and there's nothing that we do, if you sing Rock of Ages honestly, then you are celebrating the Reformation, uh, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And on Reformation Sunday, we're going to do the most Reformed thing we can do. We're going to preach the next verse. So our, uh, our passage this morning is Matthew chapter 26, verse 17 and following. If you want to use the Pew Bible, page 832 is where you will find that. Matthew chapter 26, verse 17 through 25. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful, and began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, you have said so. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that as we look to your word this morning, you would give us hearts that solemnly, soberly ask, is it I, Lord? Lord, I pray for a right judgment of our own hearts. And Lord, more than that, I pray for confidence in Christ. Give us understanding, Lord, as we look to your word. That's us in Christ's name. Amen. Well, over the last several weeks, especially as we were studying um, chapter 25, I've had some good conversations with a number of you, some interesting conversations with you about that chapter, particularly surrounding the, uh, the warnings that Jesus gave us in, in Matthew chapter 25. And a lot of those conversations that we've had have surrounded the topic of assurance. Can we know, can we be assured that we're truly in Christ, that we're truly Christians? It's a very reasonable question, isn't it, considering that the content of what we have been reading in chapter 25, after all, one of those themes that Jesus repeatedly brought up is these people who 
presumed that they were a part of the church. They presumed that they were Christ's followers, and yet on Judgment Day, they were excluded from the kingdom. Remember the bridesmaids? They thought they were a part of the wedding feast. They were dressed for the wedding feast. They had spent all their time with the other bridesmaids who would be welcomed into the wedding feast, but on the day of the wedding feast, they were turned away. Remember the servant who buried his talents? He was with the other servants. He thought he was a servant of the Lord. He thought he was doing the right thing. He thought he was making good use of the master's money, but he was wrong. and He was cast out into the outer darkness. And then there were the people on Judgment Day, we saw at the end of chapter 25, who were clueless as to why they were being excluded. They didn't know. They thought that they had done great things for the king. They thought that they served the king, but they had not loved the king's brothers. Remember that? That entire chapter, for those of you who are are more sensitive, was a heavy chapter. And if, if you read chapter 25 without once reflecting on your own faith, you were reading it wrong. That chapter seemed to be saying that we cannot have assurance that we're truly in Christ and and that we won't find out until Judgment Day whether we made the cut or not. felt that way. And on Reformation Sunday, that's troubling because we as beneficiaries of of the the Reformation of the Church of Christ, those of us who have rejected Rome and John Paul in favor of Romans and John and Paul. We believe that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We believe that there is nothing that can snatch us out of the Father's hands. We believe that there is nothing that can keep us from the Father's love. Right? We believe we can have assurance. We're Baptists. And yet, when we read chapter 25, we struggle, don't we? Because it it seems like he's saying, it seems like he's suggesting that we cannot have assurance. Well, this week's passage and what will come over the next several weeks continues us on that that soul-searching theme. And it's worth our time to take it seriously. After all, we are dealing with, with Judas. He is the center of the focus here, isn't he? And Judas is a man who has spent three years being discipled by Jesus. He was called by Jesus just like the other disciples. He followed Jesus. He participated in in much of Jesus' ministry. He was among that number who, who were sent out by Jesus to proclaim the the gospel, repent for the kingdom is near. He was one of those guys. He saw nearly all of Jesus' miracles. He benefited from some of Jesus' miracles. He he heard nearly all of Jesus' teaching. He was called by Jesus. He was chosen by Jesus. He was one of the twelve. But when it became apparent to Judas that Jesus was not the Messiah that he wanted him to be, well, 
Judas sold him out. But, but as we're going to see in our passage, when Jesus tells the disciples, one of you will betray me, all of the disciples worried that it might be them. We know that Judas was the betrayer. Jesus knows that Judas was the betrayer. Judas knows that he was the betrayer. And yet, all of the disciples are worried that they could be the betrayer. And what that brings to mind is whether they were right to be concerned that they could be the one. Was it right for them to ask that question, Lord, is it I? And then, should we, should you and I, should we be concerned that we could betray Jesus and fall away from him? See why this is an assurance question, a follow-up to chapter 25? So we're going to talk about assurance, we're going to talk about doubt this morning, but before we get there, we have to do some context work, all right? This passage, after all, isn't just about the disciples, it's not just about Judas, this is what we as Christians know as the Last Supper. This is really important. This is the night when Jesus would have the Passover meal, when he would share the Passover meal with the disciples, the night that we would forever know as the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper. It's also the day before Jesus' death. So as we begin this passage we are now, as we worked our way through Holy Week, Passion Week, we are now on Thursday as Jesus moves towards the cross. This is what Matthew calls in verse 17, the first day of unleavened bread. And if you're trying to get your Bible calendar straight, which I struggled with all week because it's confusing, uh, you have to remember this. Our days begin at midnight, right? So it's not tomorrow until midnight tonight. But Jewish days began at sundown. And they get this from Genesis. They get it from the order of creation. Think of the way that Moses writes in Genesis. There was evening and there was morning the first day. There was evening and there was morning the second day. And so on. If we were to translate that way of organizing the calendar and the clock, we, we would say that Monday begins at the end of sunlight on Sunday rather than at midnight tonight, okay? So, so, so for those of you who are going to the upper room tonight, uh, at 7 p.m., if we were in the original upper room, we would say that we were meeting first thing on Monday, which would be really confusing, and you would come and there would be nobody here. But following this calendar, you would know exactly when we were supposed to meet. So Passover, in the year that Jesus was crucified, was on a Friday. It's not always on a Friday. It's always on the 15th of the first month or the 14th of the first month of the year. But that year it was on a Friday. And that day begins in the evening of what we call Thursday. Okay? So, so we say that the events of what we're reading took place on Thursday of Holy Week. And they do begin on Thursday. Uh, and we see that in verse 17. On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepared for you to eat the Passover? So what is this business about unleavened bread and the Passover? Well, the first day of unleavened bread is the day that Jews would have begun to remove the leavening from the home. 
All right, so traditionally, that's what they would have called first day of unleavened bread because it's the first day there's no leavened bread in the home, which would be Thursday at daytime. You couldn't have leavened bread for the Passover meal that night. In fact, you had to remove it the day before, but you also couldn't have leavened bread the seven days after Passover that followed the Passover meal. So that, that entire celebration is known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and we saw that a little bit in, in Exodus 12. And this does go back to Exodus, to that passage that, that Gavin read for us. Passover, as you probably picked up on in the passage, call it Passover because it gets its name from the night when the Lord passed over the homes that had the blood of the Lamb painted on the doors. So Passover was the beginning of God creating for himself a covenant people. This is, this is a very important history for, for Jewish people. That was the beginning of God creating for himself a people. The covenant between Israel and the Lord would not take place until later on at Mount Sinai, but Passover was the night when God set Israel apart. He distinguished the people of Israel from the people of Egypt. And we see that in Exodus chapter 11. Exodus 11 verse 7 says that God did this, he did the Passover, so that his people would know that God makes a, look at the word that Moses uses, a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Why? What's, what's so special about Israel? Well, to answer that, we have to go back in time a little bit, and we'll do that very briefly. God had revealed himself long, long ago to Abraham, the great patriarch of Israel, and God had promised this man Abraham that he would bless him and he would multiply him and preserve his offspring and then bring them into the land of promise. That was God's promise to Abraham. And what we find takes place is a lot of this Blessing, a lot of this multiplying actually happened while Israel was in the land of Egypt, not the promised land. And to figure out how they ended up in Egypt, well, you have to read Genesis. I'm not going to do all the work for you. But, but, but the fact is, this tribe of people, the offspring of Abraham, has been in Egypt for multiple generations now. And here's how God has blessed them there. Look at the beginning of Exodus but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, just like God promised Abraham they would be. They multiplied and they grew exceedingly strong. This is a huge tribe, so that the land was filled with them. Not their land, Egypt land. And as a result of that divinely blessed growth, two things happened. One, the Egyptians began to grow fearful of these people because they were very powerful. They were numerous. And so Egypt enslaved them. And then secondly, God, in response to that, raised up Moses from among the Israelites to rescue Israel out of Egypt so he could fulfill that long-ago promise to Abraham. And as God's work in redemption is set in motion, God renews those promises that he made to Abraham. God is always renewing his promises with his people. 
As I read this, I'm going to read from you from Exodus chapter 6. I want you to look. Just be thinking about the promises that God is making to his people. This is God speaking to Moses. He says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, that's God's covenant name, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. You see the promises? I will bring you out of Egypt. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you from judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will bring you into the land of promise. I will give you the land. God will, God will, God will. Those are promises. And all of that promise keeping is begun for Israel the night of the Passover. On that night, God poured out the tenth and the worst of the plagues of his wrath on Egypt. And the firstborn of everyone in the land of Egypt was killed, from the Pharaoh's son all the way down to the the lowliest slave. And even, God says, to the cattle, the firstborn of the cattle. And what's interesting is God did not say he would just do this to the Egyptians. He said it would be to everyone in the land. The same judgment would have come on Israel, except for one thing, right? It would come on them unless there was a substitute. Death was coming. Death is is the punishment for sin. All were guilty of sin. Death was coming even for the Israelites, but God instructed in his mercy that every Israelite family should sacrifice a spotless lamb as a substitute for their own sons. The lamb would die in their place. And to show that this substitute had been made, the the blood of the lamb was to be painted over the doorposts of each Israelite home, and as death passed over, the, the destroyer would see that death had been atoned for. Sin, rather, had been atoned for in each of these Israelite homes. These were the people with whom God was at peace with. In the same night that death passed Over them, the Lord passed over them. Israel was also supposed to eat that sacrificial lamb. And eating the lamb set them apart, it consecrated them. They became not only covered by the lamb's blood, but they would also be nourished by the substitutionary sacrifice. Foreshadowing next week, okay? Next week, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. So so lastly, as a sign of faith that they would be redeemed that night, Israel was also to eat the Passover meal with their traveling clothes on. Did you notice that in the reading? Why are they supposed to eat it with their sandals and their cloaks and their staff in their hand, the whole outfit? Well, they were to clothe themselves 
ready to go because it was a sign that they were trusting that God was going to deliver them. That God would truly begin to fulfill those promises to them that very night. He was going to bring them out of Egypt. And as you read Exodus, which is a very quick read, it's an exciting book to read, you find that, uh, that God was faithful to his promises. He brought them out. He redeemed them out of slavery. He made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. They became his people. He became their God. He brought them into the land. He gave them the land. Everything that God said he would do, he did. And so, because of that, from Exodus onward, God's people always remembered that meal, Passover meal, because it reminded them of God's promises. It reminded them that God was faithful to his promises. It was the night, really, that they were adopted as his children. In fact, even today, as the, as the Passover meal is celebrated, for those who have not yet known the Lord, they, they remember it by thinking of God's promises. And they, they drink each glass of wine. I think there are four cups of wine that night. And each glass of wine represents one of God's promises. If only they knew when they ate the lamb that that promise too had been fulfilled. But they celebrate, they consume the wine, celebrating God's faithfulness to his promises. There's so much more we can say about Passover because it's a really important night. Uh, for the Jews, it's a very important night, obviously, for Jesus. He's celebrating it with, with his disciples. He has set apart time to do this. It's the, the, the day that he has chosen to sacrifice himself. But we're going to talk about that next week, all right? So next week, we're going to get to that institution of the Lord's Supper. We're going to take the supper together. It'll be a, a very good picture of what's taking place. But friends, this is, this is the meal that Jesus and his disciples are celebrating that evening. A matter of hours before Jesus' death. You, you can probably get a sense of why this feast what was, was the day that God in his providence had chosen to give his firstborn son in exchange. So here we are, the disciples know that Jesus, a good Jew, will want to observe the Passover. They know that he's going to want to do it in Jerusalem, the holy city. And so they ask, where do you want us to prepare the Passover? And Jesus directs them in verse 18. See that? He says, go into the city, he means Jerusalem, to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. It means he's going to die. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And we don't know about how this arrangement took place, whether it was divine or human. It's some prior arrangement. Jesus knows about it. This man somehow knows about it, and he just instructs his, his disciples accordingly. And I didn't think much about this, but as I was reading one of the commentaries this week, uh, and I love this, I just want to share it with you. Uh, the, the, the writer says, though there is a secret enemy among Jesus' friends, Jesus has secret friends amongst his enemies. Isn't that cool? Jesus has secret friends amongst his enemies in the city. And I'm sure it was an encouragement to me because I know that I've experienced that before. You've experienced that before. 
You're in some environment that you know is hostile to Christ and you meet another Christ follower. What a breath of fresh air is that? It, it, what an encouragement knowing that, that, the, that the Lord is providing for you for your encouragement even in that moment. And he's been doing that for a long time. That's, that's all I want to say about that. Let's get to verse 19. Verse 19, they get to the room, they prepare the meal, and verse 20 says, when evening came, he reclined at table with the 12. Talk more about the significance of that next week. But, but we see here the meal's been prepared. The disciples and Jesus are in that upper room to celebrate the meal. They're reclined at table, and that's how they ate. They would have laid down at table. So it looks nothing like that Lord's Supper painting. Uh, it, 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 nothing at all like that Lord's Supper painting. They, they would have, it would have been more like a U-shaped pillows uh, that they would have reclined on, laying on their sides, and they would have eaten from what was in the middle of the U, which was a little bit of a raised table there. Um, Again, that is not something we see many paintings of, but that's how they did it, Uh, it, and that's where they are. They're there in the upper room. Matthew makes a point of telling us it's evening now. You see that? And that means it's technically, according to their calendar, it's Friday now. The Passover has begun. Now, I told you that we would talk about assurance and doubt. So here we go. Look at verse 21. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now why does Jesus ask this question? Why would he say this? Jesus knows it's true. Judas already knows it's true. This is between Jesus and Judas. What is about to take place? Why does Jesus have to bring all of the other disciples into this drama? And I mean that in the sincerest sense. Why not? This is his last meal with them. These men love him. Why not let them just enjoy this meal without stirring up doubt, without stirring up anxiety and angst? Jesus knows they will not be the ones to betray him, right? So why does he cause them this distress? We're so used to reading this passage, I think out of, um, usually because we read it around Monday, Thursday, or Good Friday. We don't, we don't often think about what's going on emotionally for these men. I'm not going to psychobabble you, but, but, but there's, there's, there's this, a real sense of emotional distress here. Matthew even uses a word in verse 22. Look at the way he describes their reaction. He says they were very sorrowful at Jesus' question. And they began to say to him, one after another, is it I, Lord? They were very sorrowful, extremely distressed. Jesus or Matthew, rather, never uses that language anywhere else in his gospel. He doesn't use that, uh, that word very before in emotion anywhere else, except for one other place. Matthew uses this phrase one other time, and it's later on that same evening 
when Jesus' soul is very sorrowful. He's in the garden and he prays that God would remove the cup from him. So in Matthew's comparison here for us, and this is the same chapter. We're not you know, searching all over the Bible for, for a comparison. In Matthew's comparison right here, back to back, as concerned as Jesus is about dying on the cross, the disciples are that concerned that they may be the ones who would betray Jesus. They take Jesus' warning extremely seriously. And so they ask him, trembling, is it I, Lord? And here's what I love about this interaction. So you've got Peter, you've got the two Jameses, and Andrew and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Thomas, Matthew, Thaddeus, Simon. They all trust, listen, they all trust Jesus' words more than they trust themselves. You see that? In their, in their hearts, they have no intentions of betraying Jesus. They haven't made plans to betray Jesus. They have not secretly gone off and exchanged secret knowledge about where Jesus will be to his enemies for money. None of them have, except for Judas. And yet, Jesus says to them, one of you will betray me. And because they trust Jesus' words, every one of them believes that what Jesus is saying could be true. Think about that. They believe they might be the one. This, friends, this is what the warnings in Scripture are designed to do for us. They are designed, they are inspired by God, given to us by God, so that we would ask, whenever we read one of those warnings in Scripture, so that we would say, is it I, Lord? Lord, is that verse about me? Hebrews chapter 6, one of the scariest chapters in the Bible. We're supposed to read that and say, Lord, is that about me? Is it I, Lord? Lord, am I the one who will betray you? Am I that guy? Am I the one who will turn my back on you? Am I presuming upon your grace? Am I the one who will bury what you've entrusted to me because I never took delight in knowing you? Am I the one who will fail to love your brothers? Am I in danger of falling away? We're supposed to ask those questions. Jesus was not wasting his breath when he, when he told us about the sower of the, in the four soils and the one who sprang up in a joyful response to the word, but then withered away in the sun. Or the, or the one who got choked out by the worries of the world. Those aren't just hypothetical scenarios. He wasn't being hypothetical when he told us about the, the people who did many, many mighty works in Jesus' name, but were turned away in the end. He wasn't being theoretical when, when he told his disciples that to truly follow him meant to first take up their cross and endure with him to the end. Jesus, if, if you've been paying attention, he's been constantly prompting his disciples to examine their faith. And that's what he's doing here when he says, one of you will betray me. 
Jesus is not in sin, is he? No. He is doing what is right and what is good for their souls. And so we should understand that when Jesus does this for us, it is right and it is good for our souls. When you're in distress, when you're very sorrowful, it is right and good for your soul. The disciples were so accustomed to this training, this discipleship that they've been receiving from the Lord. They know that the right response is not, Lord, this cannot be. I I was baptized by you. I prayed with you. I worshiped with you. No, the right response to the Lord's warnings here is, is it me? Friends, we should also respond to Jesus by asking that question. Well, in response to the disciples' question, Jesus gives, we're going to come back around that, to that in a moment, but let's keep going in the text. Verse 23, they ask the question, and Jesus doesn't give them a very clear answer. Uh, look at verse 23. He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Now, on the surface, it seems like he's saying the guy whose hand is in the bowl with me right now, that, that's him. That's not what's happening. It's clearly not what's happening because this answer from Jesus does not answer the question for the disciples. They don't go, oh, Judas. No. They don't all, they don't, they don't all turn and look at Judas with his hand in the cookie jar. That's not what's happening here. This is, this is another one of those Old Testament passages that points us forward to the Messiah. And it comes from Psalm chapter 41. Jesus is quoting Psalm 41. Let me read for you Psalm 41, 5 through 10. And just look at how many parallels there are to to this last week of Jesus' life. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. There's a lot here, isn't there? We have in verse 5, the people who want Messiah dead. And then in verse 6, there is one who is falsely befriending Messiah, but in reality is a betrayer. And then in verse 7, you have the the whispering, the, the conspiracies against Messiah. We saw that last week. And then in verse 8, the enemies believe they have killed Messiah. But in, in verse 9, this is the one, our focus this morning It turns out that a close, trusted friend that Messiah has shared meals with is actually the betrayer. That's what Jesus is quoting. And then in verse 10, the Messiah trusts that the Lord will raise him up. How is that not resurrection, right? It appears that he's been defeated by his enemies, and yet he trusts the Lord will raise him up. This is a foreshadowing to what will happen on Sunday. We see all of that being fulfilled in Jesus' life, in the last week of his life. But but at this meal that Jesus is having with his disciples, we we particularly see 
he is betrayed by one of his close friends that he is sharing bread with. This is a reminder to us that everything that happens to Jesus has been foretold in the scriptures. And as it happens, as scripture is fulfilled, it confirms again and again and again, this man is the Messiah. And Jesus says as much in verse 24, doesn't he? He says, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. He's saying, everything that happens to Messiah has previously been written of him. Even the betrayal that happens to him was written of him in Psalm 41. And he quotes Psalm 41. But then look at the rest of what Jesus says. So it's all, these things have been written, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. I want you to see something. Jesus is saying, on the one hand, that it is destiny that Messiah must be betrayed and crucified. It must happen. It has been God's plan foreordained from before creation. God has ordained it. He promised it would happen. He spoke it into the scriptures so that when it did happen, his people would know this was God's plan. And at the same time, so you have all of this uh, predestination on the one hand, to use an election word, but at the same time we have playing out, God is not moving someone's puppet strings to make these things happen, is he? To see that God's plan is fulfilled, he is not, you know, doing a kind of voodoo thing with with a, a, a puppet or a figurine up in heaven. Judas is very clear here. Judas is completely free of any constraints from God that would force him to betray Jesus. Judas freely and willfully went to the people who wanted to see Jesus killed, and he freely and willfully cut a deal with them, and he freely and willfully returned to the twelve and pretended as if nothing was the matter. He came up with all of that by his own volition. It was his own heart. And Jesus says here that this betrayer is guilty. So guilty, in fact, that it wouldn't have been, it would have been better for the man if he had not been born. What Jesus is saying here, that means he will justly and rightly receive the worst possible punishment in the next life. Because he's culpable for his actions. He is earning his punishment. And what you've got to see in the scriptures is that both of these realities are true. God ordained the betrayal. God ordained the death of Messiah 100%. And Judas is the one who is guilty, guilty, guilty of betraying Messiah 100%. This betrayal has been foreordained by God and predestined by God to take place in this way, and the betrayer freely and willfully and sinfully from his own heart and his own desires has done the betraying. And there is no contradiction. And if that feels contradictory to you, most likely it is because you are thinking of God as if he were finite. He's not. 
he is eternal. He is infinite. And his, his ability and, and what he can and cannot do is not limited, it's not bound by what you and I can understand. His ways are not our ways. There is none like him. There is no one that can comprehend him, save God himself. Well, right after Jesus pronounces this woe on the betrayer, well, that's about the time that Judas decides, I should probably say something. Apparently, he didn't say anything when the other disciples were asking that, is it I, Lord, question. And Matthew doesn't tell us why he didn't say anything. Maybe he was scared. Maybe he thought Jesus was bluffing, trying to, you know, ferret out the rat. Maybe he was stunned that Jesus knew what was going on, and, and, and he, was, he just couldn't say anything. Matthew doesn't tell us. We have to use our imaginations. But either way, after this severe warning, this severe word from Jesus about this woe, Judas knows he has to say something. He can't be the only one who doesn't ask Jesus, is it I? That would make his secret too obvious. Right? I think about the meme with the guy with the side eyes and the monkey. Anyway, that's just for your 140. So, so Judas finally speaks up, and, he, and look what he says in verse 25. Is it I, rabbi? Rabbi means teacher. All right? In Matthew's gospel, you need to see this in Matthew's gospel. No one, none of the disciples ever called Jesus rabbi. They always called him Lord. Even when the disciples were asking if they were the betrayers, they said, is it I, Lord? Remember what we just said a few moments ago. This is key. They trusted Jesus more than their own hearts, more than their own thoughts, more than their own emotions. Jesus is Lord to them, and if the Lord said that one of them would betray him, then Jesus must be telling the truth. It must be one of us. Is it I, Lord? But Judas responds differently, doesn't he? Because Judas is different than the rest of them. And Matthew makes a point to show us this. Judas says, is it I, rabbi? And that gets to the heart of the assurance question. If Jesus is your Lord, if you, by faith, know that he is your Christ, that he has died to save you from your sin and he has made atonement for your sin, if Jesus is your Lord and Christ, then you can, with godly fear and trembling, honestly ask, is it I, Lord? Because when Christ is the bedrock of our assurance, then we can freely doubt ourselves. Brothers and sisters, God forbid that the opposite be true, that, that we would trust ourselves and doubt Christ. Doubt yourself. Be, become accustomed to, 
as the great reformer John Calvin says, become accustomed to honoring the Lord's power and greatly abasing yourself. Calvin goes on, for nothing so moves us to rest our assurance and certainty in the Lord as the distrust of ourselves and the sorrow brought about when we are aware of our own sinful hearts. If Jesus is your Lord, then you can rest in him. And you, you can be assured, assurance, you can have it. You can be assured of his saving work for you and you can freely then examine your life and root out sin. You can, you can do that without condemnation. And you can do that without despair. The surety of our faith, Christ himself, allows us to doubt ourselves and work out our salvation with a rightful, God-honoring fear and trembling. When we, when we in faith ask, is it I, Lord? We are participating with the Holy Spirit in rooting out the unbelief that still resides in our flesh. Never seems to go away. We know it's there. We're confessing it is there when we say, is it I? We doubt ourselves. And friends, that is a very good thing to do. This is one of the ways that we grow in holiness. The flesh, you know this, the flesh is self-confident. The flesh is self-assured. And the worst of it is that the flesh is deceptive. So when we ask, is it I, Lord, we're admitting to Jesus, I don't trust myself. I don't trust my flesh. I know that I am capable of profaning your name. I know I am capable of betraying you. And I want you to root that out of me. One of the things that stands out to me most about seminary years ago is Every single class that I was in, the professor sometime during the semester would, would, would say, it doesn't matter who it was, all of them would say, whenever you begin to think that you won't be the one to fall into sin, that's when you will fall into sin. <laughs> and you can imagine, if, if you are, a, a, many of us have been in churches where there has been moral failure the pastor, but imagine being a, a seminary professor, and all of those young men that you trained, and every year you're finding out about another guy that was under your tutelage, that has fallen into adultery, or has fallen into embezzling money, or he's fallen into drugs, or whatever it is. That would, it would be heavy, wouldn't it? So every one of them, at some point during the semester, would say, be on guard lest you fall. Don't be like my other students. Paul told the Corinthian church the same thing. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. We must be willing to ask, is it I, Lord? Because what happens is the, the Lord uses that 
heart of humility and that self-doubt in order to anchor us more surely in him. He's the trustworthy one. He is Lord. But Judas could not call the Savior Lord. To Judas, Jesus was just a teacher of the law. One rabbi that the other rabbis wanted dead. A rabbi that he saw that he could profit from. And so his insincere question, is it I, rabbi, revealed the truth in his heart, didn't it? Jesus was not his Lord. And Jesus' answer confirms Judas' own admission. You said it. You said it, Judas. I'm not your Lord. You will betray me. Is Jesus your Lord? Next week, as the body of Christ, we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper together. And so in response to this passage, I want you to do this week what the church for thousands of years has done. Prepare yourself to participate in that supper by examining your heart. I would invite you this week, in preparation for Sunday, to ask this question daily. Lord, is it I? Would I betray you? Use this week to reflect on the weakness of your own flesh and your need for Christ. And I can assure you that as you understand better how weak you are, how sinful you are, the more you will appreciate and glory in Christ's work for you. His love for you and this, the security that you have in him and not in yourself. If Jesus is simply a teacher to you, he's not your Lord, then you not only could betray him, you will betray him. Like Judas, you will willfully betray him. And so for those of you for whom Jesus is not your Lord, for he's only, he's only a teacher among many teachers, a philosopher, repent. Repent today. Turn from following Judas to hell and trust in Jesus today as Lord and as Savior, as the King who knows you better than you know yourself. He's the one who knows you need saving. So trust him. Follow him. And doubt yourself.